I'm good. I think. All right, good morning, everyone. If you got your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and we will be in the first three verses today. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and we will be in the first three verses. The title of our lesson this morning is Speaking in the Spirit. Speaking in the Spirit. Now, as we turn to uh, chapter 12, we're kind of turning a corner. We're about three-quarters of the way through our study uh, in Corinthians. We've made it all the way through 11 chapters, and we've gotten now to chapters 12 and 13 and 14. And chapters 12, 13, and 14 all will basically deal with the same subject, and that is spiritual gifts. Uh, the, the misuse and the abuse of spiritual gifts in the church at Corinth was such a major problem that Paul is going to spend chapter 12, chapter 13, and chapter 14 dealing with it. And as he does, we're going to learn a lot. Uh, he's going to deal with a lot of issues that the church still deals with today. So it's not, you know, it's, it's, a, it's an amazing thing with the church at Corinth that all the problems they had are still problems we deal with today. You know, because I've said it before, human nature is human nature. Um, people are people. They, they have the same likes and dislikes, and, and, and it just, it, we're just people. And so we're going to learn a lot about the spiritual gifts. And I want to say this up front. Apart from the ministry of the Holy Spirit, which is everything, the Holy Spirit transforms, He regenerates, He teaches, He, he grows, He does everything, doesn't He? Apart from the ministry of the Holy Spirit, there is nothing more vital to the life and the health of the church, according to Scripture, than spiritual gifts. You know, they are endowments. God has given them to us for the church to grow, for the common good. In in fact, Paul will tell us this next week when we get to these verses. He says this, Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for what? For the common good. It's a big... Spiritual gifts are a big deal. They have been given and ordained by God for the life and the health uh, of the church. Therefore, it is crucial that as a church, we understand spiritual gifts and their use, their proper use... Because, again, it's absolutely vital to the life and health of the church. Now, we've got to be honest, though. A lot of people, and, and that's just the reason I stress this up front, because a lot of people don't understand this at all. We, we mentioned this last week, that there's too many people in the church today that view the church as less than it really is. We said that last week. We view the church as less than it really is. A lot of people just see it as a religious organization. We're a group of people that we all kind of have the basic same beliefs about God, and so we get together and meet once or twice a week. That's, that's just how some people view us, as just a religious organization. Other people may see us like, a, uh, like an agency that when the community has needs, it's time for us to pass out food or pass out clothes or, or, or go pay a, pay a light bill or do something like that. Other people see it 
as a social organization, something you need when you need to get baptized or you, or you need to bury somebody or, or you need to dedicate a baby or if you want to get married, they see the church as that. But that is all, and by the way, those are all have some truth to them, don't they? I mean, they all have some truth to them, but if that's your view of the church, it's way your view is way down here when God's view is, is way up here. You see, biblically, the Bible tells us that the church is a living, breathing or, uh, organism, a spiritual organism. It is a living body with Christ as the head, is it not? That's how the, biblically the, the Bible describes the church. You know, I was thinking about this the other day. We worship a supernatural God, do we not? We believe that God supernaturally intervened in history in the person of Jesus Christ. We believe in a supernatural Holy Spirit who supernaturally regenerates us and supernaturally dwells in with us, within us, do we not? You see, the fact is we have been given by the Holy Spirit supernatural spiritual gifts. This is a supernatural organization. This is a supernatural organism that God has ordained, and He's ordained that we walk in the supernatural. He's just done that. And, and, and a lot of people don't understand that, and we'll talk about that as, as we move through this. But He's given us supernatural spiritual gifts that, by which we will build up the church, edify the church, grow the church, strengthen the church, until the Bible says it reaches the full stature of Christ. That's what the church is. Not a social agency, not, a, not a, uh, a religious organization or anything like that. It is a living, breathing, supernatural organism with Christ as the head. And this organism only functions properly if we walk in the proper use of spiritual gifts. God has, or you, you may not like that, may make you uncomfortable, but the fact is you read the Scripture, that has how, is how God has ordained the church to be strengthened and to live and to walk and witness to, to the world. That is exactly what Paul is going to be talking about in chapters 12 through 14. The proper use, the correct use of spiritual gifts within the body of Christ. Okay, he's going to, three chapters. We're going to be we're going to be dealing with this because it's such a big deal. It is so crucial to the life of the church. Now, today, we're only going to get through three verses. Okay, <laughs> now that was not my intention when I started out. When I started this study, I thought, well, I'll at least get through half this chapter, but I couldn't get past three verses um, because I realized very quickly if I just blew these verses off and went through them very quickly and moved on, that that would be a big mistake, okay? I, I just, there was some stuff in these three verses that we need, to, uh, we need to learn. In fact, Paul, remember, he's fixing to speak for a very long time on spiritual gifts, so he wants to preface his remarks with something pretty important. In fact, he, he, what he wants to do in these first three verses is lay down a, a very important rule for us to go by. Okay, something that will stabilize us in the area. Of, everybody with me? He, he knows he's fixing to wade into a subject, and there's going to be lots of different opinions about this subject. So he wants to lay down this rule right at the beginning that will stabilize the discussion. Okay, and, and we're going to see that as we, as we move ahead. So as we begin chapter 12, Paul makes it very clear about what he's about to talk about. He's going to instruct the Corinthian church again, on the correct use of spiritual gifts 
in Christian meetings. You look at verse 1, he says this, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed. One of your, your translations may say, I do not want you to be ignorant or uneducated. Now, don't miss that word, because they are uneducated. They are uninformed. Everybody with me? He's saying, I don't want you to be that way, so I'm going to lay out this, I'm going to give you this information to educate you, but he's saying you are uninformed. You are ignorant. You are without education. You don't know what you're doing. Okay, so I'm going to, he wades right into it. You're, you don't know what you're doing when it comes to spiritual gifts. I don't want you to stay in that state. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you some, some information. Now, he goes on and says this in verses 2 through 3. He says, You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now, this is an odd thing to say. I mean, don't you find that odd? He says, he says, I don't want you to be uninformed about spiritual gifts. And then he immediately says, hey, when you were pagans, you were led away to mute idols. And then he goes on to say, no one, no one speaking in the Spirit of God can call Jesus a curse. And you might be thinking, what is he doing here? What is he talking about? Well, I want to point out something to you, and I, I highlighted these in yellow. Notice the connection between the idols and the Spirit. You see, the idols are what? They're mute. That means they cannot, what? Speak. Then he goes on to say, but in the Holy Spirit does what? He speaks. He says. Do y'all see that connection there? Idols are mute. The Holy Spirit speaks, and anyone speaking in the Holy Spirit. Everybody see that? The connection there. And we're going we're gonna to get a little bit deeper, but that's, that's very important there. The mute idols. He doesn't say dumb idols. And by the way, Idols, I mean, well, it does say dumb idols, but he doesn't say deaf idols. He doesn't say they can't hear. See, the whole thing here is about speaking. And we're going to see that as we move into it in just a second. Now, go back to verse 3. Verse 3 says this, Therefore I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is a curse, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now, at first glance, that's a difficult verse to understand. It almost sounds like Paul is giving a litmus test that all you have to do to be a Christian is just utter the phrase, Jesus is Lord. And don't ever say, Jesus is a curse. It almost sounds like he's saying, as long as you just say, Jesus is Lord, you can, you're, you're speaking by the Spirit. But we know that that is, that is not true. First of all, common sense tells us that anybody can mouth the words, Right? You don't have to be a Christian. If I, I can just go out and say, here, I'll give you 20 bucks to say Jesus is Lord. Anybody can say Jesus is Lord. But more importantly, common sense tells us that's not true, but more importantly, Scripture itself tells us this is not true. Matthew seven twenty one, a Scripture we're all familiar with, Jesus said this, Not everyone who says, not everyone who speaks the words, Lord, Lord, not everyone who says Jesus is Lord is going to enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Look at verse uh, Titus 1.16. It says, They profess, they say they know God, but they deny Him by their works. Everybody see that? So there's two scriptures saying there are people out there who profess to know God. They call Him Lord, but the Bible says very clearly their works fall short. Their works do not validate what's coming out of their mouth. 
That's, that's exactly what he's saying. Their works don't line up with what they're, with what they're saying. Okay, we, we've got a saying in this church. We say it all the time, right? True salvation equals what? A changed life. When you really know Jesus is Lord, it, your works change. It changes who you are from the inside out, and, and you change. These people are not changed. They're just saying it with their mouth. It's not inside their heart. And the Bible says those people will not go to heaven. They will not spend eternity with, with him. The clue to understanding this passage is verse 2, because verse 3 is a conclusion drawn from verse 2. Look at verse 2. Paul says, You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, everybody see the therefore? He's saying, because I just said this, now let me say, let me say this. So if we want to understand what verse 3 means... Where, G, where, where Paul says anybody speaking by the Spirit of God cannot call Jesus accursed. They have to be calling him Lord if you're going to speak by the Spirit. That verse is linked to verse 2, where Paul says you, when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Paul is reminding them that before they came to Christ, many of them were led away to dumb idols or to mute idols. In other words, they had been seduced into false religious cults, okay? So a lot of these people came out of these false religious cults. So what does this have to do with the use or the misuse of, of spiritual gifts? Well, I want to pause for just a minute and go back to the very beginning. We started this study in January, and I want to recall the situation of the Corinthian church just to kind of get everybody back up to speed. Now, as we remember, Paul... Uh, established the Corinthian church during his second missionary journey. And you can read about that in, in Acts 18. And he was there about a year and a half, about 18 months, and then he had to move on. And it wasn't very long after Paul left that a lot of problems started arising in the Corinthian church, spiritual problems, moral problems. And when you look back at that church, it is, it is almost impossible to believe that one church could have that many problems. We all have pro all churches have problems. Nobody's perfect, but that church was probably one of the most messed up churches in history. They had you name a problem, they had it. It's almost inconceivable that one church could could have them have them all. For example, that church was divided. You remember very early on they were divided over opinions. They were divided over philosophy. They had lined up behind different personalities, behind different leaders. They had formed cliques. Uh, within the church. And we may ask, well, where did these divisions come from? Well, what we'll see with the Corinthians is they had a, a, a common trait in that church was they tended to drag in experiences from their old life into the church with them. In other words, they had, they had spent all this time out here in the world, and when they got saved and came into the church, they brought that into the church with them. You'll find that is a very common situation in the Corinthian church. For example, if you'll remember back in chapter 1, we studied that in the Greek culture, philosophers were, were very highly um, exalted. If you were a philosopher, everybody thought you were just, you were the man, right? And what they would do is they would tend to line up in the culture behind different philosophers. Okay, they, they had a rich history in the Greek culture of, of philosophy. So people would rally around this philosopher or, or that philosopher, the same way we kind of do today with politics. We, we rally around this candidate or this party. They did the same thing with, with philosophy. 
So when they came into the church, they brought that in there with them. Remember 1 Corinthians 1.12. Paul says, what I mean is that each one of you says, well, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Peter, or I follow Christ. So they took that same behavior that they had outside the church where they lined up behind these different personalities and they just did the exact same thing inside the church. Everybody see that? I follow Paul. I follow Peter. I'm, I'm, of, I'm of Christ. The Corinthian church was carnal. They were so sexually perverted that even in the church, inside the church, they were allowing fornication, they were allowing incest to occur in the congregation and they were doing nothing about it. Well, where, where did that come from? Why would a church allow something like that? Well, if you'll remember, we learned way back that Corinth was kind of the Las Vegas of the Mediterranean world. I mean, it, it was a port city. It was very wealthy. They got all these people coming into there, and just whatever you did went. In fact, there was a saying back in the first century to play the Corinthian. If, to say to play the Corinthian meant that you were sexually promiscuous. That's the reputation they had as a city, that anything went on, any kind of sexual immorality went on in that city. So what happened in the church? They just brought it in with them, didn't they? That's exactly what they allowed, the same morality that they had in their old life to come into their new life. In chapter 5, you got a, you got a man who's sleeping with his mother or stepmother. In chapter 6, you got people who are joining themselves to, prostit to prostitutes. And so Paul has to deal with these issues in, in the letter. The Corinthians were suing one another. So they're divided, they're formed up into cliques, they got sexual immorality rampant throughout the church, and then they start suing one another. Now you remember we read in their culture, they loved to go to court. They didn't have TV, you know, they couldn't sit around and watch court TV, right? And, and so to, for, to them, entertainment, they would actually hold court out in the streets, out in the open air, and people would flock to it. And, and the lawyers would argue and, and, and debase one another, and everybody just got a big kick out of it. So suing people was just part of their culture, um, kind of like it is here today in America. So when they became Christians, they dragged that into the church. Hey, we sued one another outside the church. Might as well sue one another inside the church. Again, this same behavior, this same experience of dragging what was in their old life into their new life. There was rebellion in the church against marriage. There was rebellion against their God-given roles. Well, why? Well, again, divorce was rampant in their culture. Feminism and women's liberation was out in the culture, so they brought all that into the church, and Paul had to deal with it in chapter 7 and again in, in chapter 11. And, and if you start watching, do you see the pattern here? You see the pattern? In essence, they are continually dragging their old life, their old experience into the church. They're letting the influences of their old life affect their behavior inside the church. Now, I said all that because we're going to see the exact same thing with spiritual gifts. What we're going to see is they're, going to, they're allowing their old former life, their old former religious experiences to affect their behavior in the church, especially or specifically in the area of, of, of spiritual gifts. Now, I don't want you to miss something. In chapter 1... Watch what Paul says. He said this, so that you are not lacking in any gift. You see, that church had been given every gift. They, everybody see that? The problem wasn't they didn't have the gifts. That wasn't the issue. He said, you've got every gift you need to have a healthy, strong, faithful church. 
That wasn't the problem whatsoever. The problem is that they were misusing and abusing the gifts. Well, why? Well, it's the same thing we just talked about. They're allowing their godless experiences, their godless religious practices to influence their behavior now inside the, the church. So we have to ask the question, well, what was it about... We, we've talked about their old culture was promiscuous. We've talked about how their culture, they sued one another. We talked about how their culture, they divided up behind philosophers. So what was it about their culture or their past religious experiences that they brought into the church that made them misuse or abuse their spiritual gifts? Well, to understand that, we need to understand these religious cults that they came out of, okay? These cults back in the Greek-Roman times were known as mystery religions. These are the, the cults of uh, Aphrodite and Venus and Apollos and Zeus. These were known as, as mystery religions. And they found different forms in different cultures, but they're pretty much, pretty much all the same. And here's the main thing you need to understand about these mystery religions that the Corinthians came out of, and that is they are almost exclusively based on ritual and emotion. Let me say that again. These religions they came out of are almost exclusively based on rituals and emotion. And specifically, the goal of these mystery religions was to bring somebody into what they called an ecstatic experience. Okay? Now, when we talk about ecstasy to, to those, those people back then... What that meant was it meant that you would come into this worship service or you would come into this religion or you would come into this ritual, ritual and the idea is you wanted to cultivate some kind of magical, sensual communion with this deity that you're worshiping. In other words, you get yourself into this sort of semi-conscious, hallucinatory sort of state. And when you did that, you kind of everybody with me? The idea was to kind of get out of yourself. To, to, to lose yourself and, and kind of get into this semi-conscious hallucinatory state. And when you did that, you were assumed to be communing with the God. That's what mystery religions, that was the height of the mystery religions, to get yourself into this state. Samuel Angus, back in the early 19th century or early uh, 20th century, wrote a book called The Mystery Religions. He said this, The person was brought into a condition in which the normal functions of personality were in abeyance, and the moral strivings which formed character virtually ceased or were relaxed while the emotional and the intuitive were accentuated. So what he's saying is they come into this service, and the idea is you set logic aside, you set control aside, you set rational thinking aside, and you let the emotion take over. Everybody with me? That, that's what he's saying. You just let your emotions flow. He goes on, to, uh, so this is a situation... Again, where a person gets into a state where their normal logic, their normal morality is set aside and they'll end up doing things that they wouldn't normally do. Okay? Your brain literally goes into park or goes into neutral and you just let your emotion take over. This, this is what they called ecstasy in the, in the mystery religions. He goes on to say this, this state can be induced by vigil and fasting, by tense religious expectancy, whirling dances, physical stimuli, the contemplation of the sacred objects, the effects of stirring music, inhalation of fumes or, or incense, and revivalist contagion. 
So what they would do is they'd use all these rituals. They'd have the incense burning. They'd have these, they'd have these icons there that had great religious significance. They would play music and, and, and to get people in the right mood. They would start dancing. Everybody with me? And, and what that would do is eventually it would kind of culminate in this ecstatic experience where you basically get outside of yourself. You're, you're out of control. Your emotions are just taken over. Your brain just goes into park. It, it doesn't even have any kind of place in that anymore. And when you did that, they said, oh, you're communing with, with a God when, when you get into that state. So it, it actually creates a euphoria in a person. It, it's a really good feeling when you get into that state. And so people think, well, because it felt good, that's got to be God. You ever heard anybody say that before? Well, I never felt anything like that. That felt good. It had to be God. But folks, it wasn't God at all. That wasn't God at all. It was paganism. It may feel good. It may even be euphoric. But the fact is, it's paganism, plain and simple. And that is what people in the Corinthian church, as they came out of these temples that they had been worshiping in, this is what they came out of. This was their past experience. When you got emotional... You were closer, you were in the spirit. When you got, you got into this state, you were communing with, with God. That's what they came out of. That was their past religious experience. And we're going to see over the, next, uh, as over the next few weeks how that affected their worship, how it affected their misuse and abuse of the spiritual gifts. Now, with all that in mind, let's come back to our verses. Look at verse 2 again, and we'll walk through this. Paul says this, You know that when you were pagans. Now there's the first word. That word pagan means Gentile. It means unbeliever. It means you are a godless heathen. You are without God. You see, Paul wants them to understand something. As an unbeliever, no matter what you experienced, no matter what you felt during those religious services, no matter what you felt during those ecstatic experiences, you were godless. That was not God. And what he's telling them is those experiences you had are useless to inform you about spiritual gifts. They are useless to inform you about God and His ways. This is why you're ignorant, he says. You can't look on those experiences and bring them into the church and say, oh, this is how it's supposed to work. So that's why he says you are uninformed. You, you think you know how it's supposed to work, but you don't. You, you, you're taking those experiences which were godless experiences and you're bringing them into the church and he says you're totally uneducated, you're ignorant of how the Holy Spirit wants to work. Okay, that's the first thing. He goes on to say this, you know that when you were pagans you were led astray to mute idols however you were led. They worshiped gods who could not talk. They couldn't, they were speechless, they were voiceless. In other words, they were unable to teach. Or inform. Remember he says, you are uninformed, right? Remember that first word, you're uninformed? Why are you uninformed? Because you worship gods that, that can't even talk to you. They can't teach you. They can't inform you of the right way to do things. Habakkuk 2.19 says this, Woe to him who says to a piece of wood, Awake, to a mute stone, arise. That's your teacher, the prophet says? A, a stone that, that can't even talk? That's going to be your teacher? Behold, it's overlaid with gold and silver, and there's no breath in it at all. That's what Paul is saying. You're worshiping gods who are false gods, who aren't real, who can't speak, who are totally useless in educating you or, in, or informing you 
about true religion. So to, to worship dumb idols or gods who could not speak really expresses in the strongest terms their foolishness and also their misery. Because Paul says, what do you think you can learn from a bunch of dumb idols? That your experiences back in, in your old life, in your old religion, are completely useless to inform you about the proper use of, of spiritual gifts. He goes on to say this. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. That term led right there is used throughout the New Testament. And every time it's used, it's speaking about people who are being led away to judgment, led away to prison, led away to execution. In other words, you're not doing this on your own. You're not in control. You're being led away. The same word in, in uh, Mark 14, 53, they led Jesus away. That's the exact same word. In other words, they arrested him, they shackle him, and they lead him away where he does not want to go. You see, what he's saying to them is, you're not in control. You think you are. You think you're in control, but you're not. You're being controlled by an influence which you can't understand and you can't even, even resist. That's who you were back then, he's saying. Now, what I want you to see is, do you see how Paul is contrasting the former condition of his readers with their present condition? He's saying, you were pagans, you were godless without God, but now you're a Christian and God lives inside of you. You were worshipers of idols, now you worship the true and living God. You once worshipped gods who could not speak, now you worship a God who can only, can only speak to you, He can speak through you. You were controlled by an irresistible impulse which led you astray. Now you are under the influence of the Spirit of God. See, they should, they should be understanding these things. He's, oh, they've been taught all this. And he's reminding them of what they came out of. And again, the whole reason he's doing this is because he wants them to see that in their former condition, they, were, they had no education, nothing at all that was going to help them now. They, are, they, they need instruction on the correct use of spiritual gifts because their previous experience gives them no experience, gives them no, they got nothing to go on. Everybody with me? That's the important thing here. He's saying, what you learned in your past religion, forget about it. I'm going to inform you. I'm going to tell you in the next three chapters how this is supposed to work. Put all that other stuff aside. I'm going to inform you moving ahead. So he wants them to remember their past of pagan idolatry, he wants them to understand it does not prepare them for an accurate understanding of spiritual gifts. He, he doesn't want them to be uninformed, but the fact is they are uninformed. They are ignorant. They are uneducated. Now listen to me. The same it can be very true for you and me. Every one of us comes in here with some kind of past. Some of you have, have come out of out of, out, of, out of churches and religions and organizations where spiritual gifts were completely misused and abused and counterfeited. Other people have, have come out of organizations where they've completely set the spiritual gifts aside and say, we don't do that. It's too risky. Can't go there. Okay? And Paul says, what I want you to do, folks, is set that aside for the next three chapters. Set it aside and let me tell you how this is supposed to work. Let me inform you about the spiritual gifts. That's what he's saying here. Your past experience is no good to you. The scripture is the truth. 
Come to the scripture and learn, is what Paul is saying to us today. Because it's so easy for us to come in here. How many people have seen it in churches throughout the year? You take a banker who knows how to run a bank, and you put him on a deacon board or an elder board, and he wants to run the church the way you run the bank. How many of you ever seen that? We do it all the time. We bring, we think, well, this is the way we do it here, so this is how we're going to do it here. No, folks. A church isn't a bank. It doesn't run like a bank. It's not an organization. It's an organism. It's a body. It's living. It's breathing. It, it, you don't run that the way you do a, a, a company or anything like that. Well, it's the same thing today. When we come to the spiritual gifts, do we come with, some of us come with bad ideas, some come with good ideas. Paul's saying, set that aside. Set that aside. Don't be uninformed. Let the Scripture inform you of the truth, not your past experience. And we have to be very careful of that. Let's read what he says in verse 3. Remember verse 2, you were led away to mute idols. They couldn't teach you. You were not even under your own control. Therefore, Paul says, what he's saying is because your pre... I want you to understand what he's saying with therefore. Because your previous experience is useless. Because it gave you no information. Because I don't want you to be ignorant. I don't want you to be uneducated. I don't want you to be uninformed. Therefore, I want to give you a test of true divine influence. I want to give you right at the very beginning a, a, a principle or a test of how to judge spiritual gifts. I'm going to give it to you right at, the very, right at the very beginning. And this is what he says. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. He said, I'm going to give you a test right off the bat. Okay? because I don't want you to be uninformed about spiritual gifts. This is this broad test, and that's, what he, that's the test that he gives us. Now, he states the same test two different ways, in a negative and a positive. This is the way he says the negative. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is a curse. Now, understand to speak in the Spirit or by the Spirit. Let's make sure we understand what Paul means there means that you are speaking under the influence of the Spirit. Does everybody understand that? When you speak in the Spirit, it means the Spirit of God is influencing you to say what you're about to say. In uh, Matthew twenty-two forty-three, 43, Jesus said to them, How does David in the Spirit call him Lord? See, when somebody's speaking in the Spirit, they're speaking under the influence of, of the Spirit. So if we back up what Paul is saying here, is I want you to understand that no one speaking under the influence of the Holy Spirit can ever call Jesus a curse. And no one speaking under the influence of, uh, except you're under the influence of the Spirit, you can, never call him, uh, you can never call Him Lord. So what he's saying here is, in essence, no one who's speaking under the influence of the Spirit of God can call Jesus a curse. Now, at first glance, that sounds pretty obvious, doesn't it? I mean, that sounds pretty obvious, right? I mean, nobody speaking under the Spirit of God would call, but I want to dig a little bit deeper here because there's, there's a message here for you and I. That word accursed in the Greek means anathema. Okay, accursed or damned. The word is anathema. That word is used to designate something or someone that's devoted to destruction. The idea here, too, is the idea of divine displeasure, that, that God is displeased with someone or something, and therefore it's devoted to destruction. In other words, it's justly accursed by God. That's the idea. Now, that is used 
throughout the New Testament. You see this all the time. For example, Galatians 1.8. Paul says, Even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach, let him be, there's that word, accursed, anathema. Justly condemned is what he's saying. 1 Corinthians 16.22. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be, there it is again, accursed, anathema, justly condemned. Therefore, to say that Jesus is anathema, what you're saying is that he was justly condemned. In other words, he was a criminal. He was a malefactor. He was justly condemned on the cross. That's what you're saying when you say he's accursed. Everybody with me? In other words, you're saying he was a man, not God, that was, not, that not, was just not killed on the cross, but he was justly condemned on, on the cross. Pliny the Younger was a governor of Pontus and Bithynia around 111 to 113 A.D. Okay, so about, about 70 years or so after Jesus died. And what's interesting about Pliny is, uh, and what's first interesting is his name, because who names their kid Pliny, first of all. But the whole point, what's interesting about Pliny is we have this whole series of letters that he wrote to the emperor Trajan. So he would have a problem, he would have an administrative problem, and he would write a letter to Trajan, who was the emperor, and the emperor would write back. And we've got this whole series of letters between them. And a lot of it just deals with, you know, stuff we're not interested in. But two of the letters are very famous because they both deal with Christianity. In other words, there came a time when Pliny encountered Christians for the first time, and he didn't know how to deal with them. He didn't know what to do. Should I kill them? Should I let him go? What should I do? So he writes letters to the emperor to ask advice. I want to give you a couple of these excerpts from his letters. He said this, Those who denied that they were or had been Christians, when they invoked the gods in words dictated by me and offered prayer with incense and wine to your image, and moreover cursed Christ none of which those who are really Christians, it is said, can ever be forced to do, those I thought should be discharged. So what he would do is when he would encounter Christians, he would bring them in and he would say, okay, this is what you've got to do if you don't want to die. You've got to offer prayer and incense and wine to the, imp to the image of the emperor. And oh, by the way, you have to curse Christ. You have to curse him. Okay? He goes on in another one. He says this, Others named by the informer declared that they were Christians, but then denied it, asserting that they had been a Christian, but had ceased to be some three years before, others many years, some as much as 25 years, and they all worshipped your image and the statues of the gods, and they did what? They called Christ accursed. They cursed him. Now here's my question. How do you think those people cursed Christ? In, in Pliny's mind, in Trajan's mind, what did it mean to curse Christ. Because he told him, you've you got to curse Christ. What does that mean? Well, what does it mean to, to curse him? You see, what they were asked to do to curse Christ was to affirm that he was just a man. Not God incarnate, but just a man who was justly put to death by the Roman Empire. You see, both Pliny and Paul agree that Christians can't do that. A Christian under the influence of the Holy Spirit, a real Christian, can never say that Jesus is just a man. To curse Christ is to put him beneath what he really is. 
To say that he's a man, even a man condemned, uh, justly condemned on the cross, is to curse him. Did everybody see that? That's exactly what Pliny... Just say he's not God. Say he's a good... You can say he's a good man. You can say he's a prophet. You can say whatever you want to say, but as long as you don't say he's God, you're cursing Christ. You're just saying he's a, he's a man. Now, he goes on, Paul does, to, to state the same thing in the positive, in, in verse 3, the end of verse 3. And he says, And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Jesus is, the word Lord there is Jehovah. Jehovah God. He's saying nobody can say that Jesus is Jehovah God except through the Holy Spirit. Do you all see the difference? And to accursed him says he's just a man. To affirm him says he's Jehovah. See, this is the test that Paul is putting out here for us. To say Jesus is Lord, therefore, is to acknowledge him to be truly God, manifest in the flesh. Paul says nobody can make that acknowledgement but through the Holy Spirit. And, and by the way, again, we're not, we already covered this. You can't, a lot of people can say it, but nobody can believe it. Nobody can, it's inside of them except through the Holy Spirit. So here, what Paul is doing here at the very beginning of these chapters where he's going to talk about the abuse and the misuse of spiritual gifts, at the very beginning, he's laying down a broad principle for discerning matters regarding spiritual gifts. And that is this, you always judge things by how they relate to Jesus Christ. You always judge things by how they relate to Jesus Christ. Does this spiritual gift glorify Jesus as God? or not? Does this gift promote the true Jesus or a false one? And we're going to see that through here. Everything we do, we're going to look at how does this lift Jesus? How does this glorify Jesus? What does this say about Jesus? If it's glorifying a man and not Jesus, we're going to set it aside. If it's trying to glorify even the Holy Spirit and not Jesus, we're going to set it aside. I mean, listen, Jesus made it plain, John 15, 26, but when the Helper comes, He will glorify who? Me. He's going to glorify Jesus. John 16, 14, He will glorify me, for He will take what is mine and declare it to you. So that's the very broad principle that Paul is setting down right at the very beginning with regards to spiritual gifts. How do they glorify Jesus? How do they lift up Jesus? What do they say about Jesus? Do they treat Him as just a man? Do they treat Him as, even if it's a good man or a prophet... Or do they lift Him up and glorify Him as God? The ministry of the Holy Spirit and the gifts that He gives us are not to promote Himself. They're not to promote any man or any organization. They are to promote and glorify and represent Jesus. We can therefore trust that the true ministry of the Holy Spirit will always, always, always glorify Jesus as God Himself. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for... 1 Corinthians 12, we thank